Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. There are hundreds of hedge funds and institutions and brokerage firms that would feel remiss if they did not have human representation on the floor. They know that, yes, in parts of their day, fast trading through a machine, hitting a button, may be advantageous or saving money for them, but on the opening of the market, during the most volatile times in the market, on the close of the market, and some of them throughout the day, utilize humans to help them make decisions, to be the point of execution, to get information that's really reliable, right? They don't know whether the information that the machine's giving them is reliable. Hello again, and this is your host, John Aiden Byrne. And you've just been listening to the opening bell on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and to my interview with the incredible Peter Tuckman in a balcony overlooking the iconic landmark. Now, even if you don't follow the stock market, many of you will know of Peter from his frequent photograph in market and mainstream stories on TV and websites and newspapers with the vivid emotional lines in his face tracing the roller coaster ride of the market itself. Peter is considered the most photographed stock trader on Wall Street. He is a trader on the New York Stock Exchange floor and a legend with over three decades in the stress-fueled stock market where seconds count. Now let me remind you, the New York Stock Exchange floor is a different place today than just a few short decades ago when thousands of human traders milled about buying and selling securities and making markets. Technology and regulation and change have reduced the number of floor traders and brokers to hundreds. But these hundreds are vital tools in today's financial market structure, combining high-speed trading with human skills and significant value added, according to Peter. Peter also has another side that we talked about. He is the son of Holocaust survivors. So that's important to know. My father saw his mother murdered in front of him, shot by a Gestapo. Her last words were, you may get me, but you will not get my father, my son and my husband. And we bear witness to that fact. My grandfather and father lived long, wonderful lives. My mother's story was a different story. Her parents were uh, selected by Joseph Mengele at the doors of uh, Auschwitz to be uh, sent to the gas chamber. She spent four years living in the work camps. The stories she told would also curdle your blood of uh, lying there waiting for the person next to them to die so that she could take their, their blouse or their shoes so she could live another day. You know, watching her sister die in her arms on the day of liberation of typhus, watching her other sister be taken to extermination, holding her two-year-old child, unnamed after Peter. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
The New York Stock Exchange in Lower Manhattan, otherwise known as the Big Board, is a powerful symbol of American capitalism. So I first asked Peter Tuckman, a trader on the floor, how he first got here. Sure, it would be my pleasure. So I came here in 1985. This was not really a destination I thought I would end up at. I went to school and studied agriculture originally. I went on to then study international business and economics. I ended up opening a record store in New York City on Bleecker Street. I was in the music business for a while. I then left the country. I lived in Africa for two years doing finance and accounting in the People's Republic of Benin. And then when I came back to New York, I got a summer job as a teletypist for Cowan & Company on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The head of the company was a patient of my father's. My father was an internist here in New York City. And so it was really, business was something I was interested in. It was just one of these opportunities that popped up and I thought, let's see, maybe this will be my calling. And I came down to the floor and as the floor has it, it's a, it's a funny place, a stressful place, an incredibly adrenaline uh, run place. And I came down, summer job, May 23rd, 1985. I walked on the floor and I knew really it was a place for me. The energy, the adrenaline, the people, the human factor, the excitement and money and numbers and all that stuff seemed really intriguing and exciting to me as it sort of follows my personality traits. They call you the most photographed stock trader on Wall Street. How did you get that uh, reputation? Anybody that follows Wall Street, of course, or on Main Street probably have the answer, but some people may not know why. So it's sort of, it's, it's a curious thing. I am sort of a loud and obnoxious and boisterous <laughs> person. I do my look while it's changed over the years. I used to have really long hair and I was sort of the hippie of the floor for a while. And then I lost my hair and then my hair went gray and I developed sort of a Einstein type haircut and look. And I was- People say you look like Einstein. Well, I do. Up until a few weeks ago, I did look like Einstein. I think it was Aaron Burnett of CNN that coined the phrase, called me Einstein originally. But in 2007, when uh, we had the financial crisis, there had always been a young guy on the floor named Alan Gershwitz who was a known as the market dude. He was the face that whenever they put a picture in the newspaper, they took his picture. And then he, one day in 2007, there was a, the market was going pretty wild and I was looking pretty wild and woolly. And I threw my hands in the air. I'm not clear what it was about at the time, whether it was the market or whether it was something going on at home. And a photograph got taken up here from the, by the Daily News, in fact, of me in that position, and it made it to the front page. It was sort of a down 600 day. It was my sort of exhilaration and wild look. And that was sort of the beginning. And when asked by the Post, by the Daily News reporter to Alan Dershowitz, what do you think about this new guy? He said, I'm gonna pass the ball to this guy. I'm retiring, and he will be your new market dude. And that sort of launched on the path to this nomenclature of being the most photographed guy. It went on after 2007. The photos started going more and more. I guess the photographers knew that if they took my picture, it would get in the paper. And I do have that sort of very, I, I wear my emotions on my, on my sleeve. And we've had quite a wild and woolly ride since 07 into 2019. And there have been more press and more media covering the floor and a lot of articles done on me. And I'm a fun, exciting guy. I'm a guy who loves the floor of the stock exchange. 
I'm an ambassador here to tell you how wonderful this place is and that it is a history that is super important. And I'm all about the human factor. That's something that I, I support in a big way. So all that put together has sort of made a big soup of, of a story that's worth telling. So Peter, take us through your life on the exchange. You've been through bull markets, bear markets, recessions, flash crashes. Describe some of those and the memories you have. Sure. So, as I said, I started working here in 85 as a teletypist. Then I went on to become an option clerk, which was basically someone who picked up phones, traded stock, uh, that was sort of layoff business from options being traded upstairs on the desk. I then followed the path. So, th just let's be clear. There's no training for this job. You come down to the floor. This is not an upstairs venture capital guy or an investment banker. These are not portfolio managers. This is called the street for a reason. The floor of the stock exchange historically has been a place where your grandfather worked, your father worked, families worked here down here together. Some of the most philanthropic, powerful people in the world came down here. Uh, we have never been the bad guy. We are people who are at the point of sale. This is the most exciting job in the world. This is the heat of battle. We are on the front lines of executing stock. All that being said, there's a path to becoming a broker, which is everybody's goal when they come down to the floor. There is no training for these jobs. So you come down, you start in this caste system, which historically been where you go from being a squad, a runner, to a teletypist, to a clerk, to a broker. That path can take you a long time. But in the midst of it all, you learn it to become a broker. That's your goal. You learn the skills that it takes to be nimble on your feet, good with numbers, good with people, be able to deal in chaos and thrive on adrenaline and go forward. All that being said, as I became a clerk in 1987, the crash of 87 happened. So I was thrown right into it at that point. I was still new and young and fresh here, but the adrenaline and the chaos was something that I thrived on. So the crash of 87. How much it? did the Dow drop on that day? 603 or 680. All hell broke loose. Correct. It was the largest percentage sell-off in history. Okay, and obviously there's a story to be told about what, why it happened and what happened, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to tell you that from a personnel member of the stock exchange, at the time it was quite wild, right? So that we were at the point of sale of the madness at that point. Markets were selling off, they were falling hard. And that was a significant thing for me to be able to thrive and, and be able to pull, and to be able to show up and be there and know I was doing the right job. And so that was that crash, what other subsequent, there were flash crashes, what are they? Well, those, that, that's, let's get the, the chronicling it right. So there was the crash of 87, there was the crash of 87, then we went on to the 90s, which were really very, very busy times. I mean, this place was a booming place. There were 1,500, 1,600 brokers. There were probably another three or 4,000 employees down on the floor from squads, clerks, brokers, reporters, market makers. They were called specialists back then. So there were four or five rooms on the floor at the time. So as the, as the economy grew and markets grew and companies went public, this place was, as it still is, the most powerful place in finance in the world. Let's go on to particular days that were powerful. Obviously the 9-11 uh, is one, it was not a trading day calamity, but obviously it was a calamity for the world. We were down here at that time, we came on the floor, markets got shut for a week, but we were here, we lost a number, a couple of members, we lost 
firms and, and customers in, in the towers, obviously, and it was a powerful time. You were watching it on TV unfold. What was going through your mind on 9-11? Well, look, I got out of the subway at 8.49, 8.50 that morning. The first building had been hit. We were rushed into, the, into our building and we were put in lockdown. We watched it unfold from the floor here. You know what, we did not know what was going on. I mean, that was a day that obviously we'll all remember and, and our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody who lost members of their family in that event. And uh, it was a day that changed the world. It was a day that changed my life, no question about it. I was here by proximity, obviously, you know, and I did lose um, a couple of members from the floor and I did lose the father of a customer of mine, a clerk that I worked with. So I do have a relationship to it and also having been here and seeing what it was like. I walked out of, off the floor at 11.30 that day into a pitch black street of three feet of ash on the ground being led away by a New York City police officer. And I had a voyage trying to get home. It took about eight hours. And you know, there were, there were bodies around, there were tables of triage at Vincent, Vincent's Hospital on 14th Street. Did the exchange close early that day? Well, no, we never opened. Oh, you never opened? We never opened on 9-11, and we did not open for a week, which is the longest time the market has ever been closed in a row. Let's, let's move on from that. So, but since then, there have obviously been, I would say, you know, there was, um, look, we are now a function of so much information, for, you know, in the event of social media and whatnot, and Twitter and whatnot, and a lot of media access to the floor. We've got CNBC and Fox and, and, and international correspondents here and Cheddar. So the information highway that comes down to us as brokers, while we try and execute stock, is quite something. So, and even if the president tweets, it can have an impact. Well, we, we are in a new mode at the moment. I hope to get to that in a little bit. <laughs> but clearly, so look, as I said to you as we were coming up in the elevator, that it's a fascinating experience when, you know, when there are investors and there are traders. Traders are people who are taking advantage of market volatility and moves to make money, right? They hopefully buy, sell, uh, buy low and sell high. Not always the case. Those are traders. They can be in the market for a minute, day, a week, a month, whatever. And then there are investors in the market. The investors in the market are the ones that make up our economy. There are people that are buying stocks on earnings, on guidance, on information, on fundamentals. So we're in a marketplace. You know, we're here. It is the end of August on one of the most wild and volatile weeks, months, years that the market has ever seen. Right? We've had the last few years, you asked me about what events have been amazingly fascinating from the inauguration, from the election of Mr. Trump, to our problems with North Korea, to the trade war and tariff problems going on with China, to Brexit, to now what we're seeing that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, that we're literally one tweet away from a thousand point move in the market. Right? So there's no more exciting time to be in the market. There's more, no more volatile time to be in the market, and sort of in a lot of ways, it's sort of a dangerous time to be in the market. And we're seeing that because, you know, if a market trades on fundamentals, then right now we're sort of in a, it's, we're defying fundamentals when a market can be tossed and, and torn around by a tweet, by disseminating economically sensitive information through social media. That we're talking about the President of the United States here. We could be talking about the President, yes.
<laughs> speaking of presidents, there have been some presidents on the floor over the years. Uh, Absolutely. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, in my world, in my experience, I've seen, look, you have to realize that, you know, you've written about it and, and it's, it's clear that the And let me just stop you there. You've been referring to some of my articles in the New York Post. Right. Correct. And, you know, look, the floor of the stock exchange historically has been the most powerful moving marketplace in the world. What go yes, it is different than it was in the 70s and 80s and in the 20s and 30s. Yes, there are fewer people here than there used to be. We have one main room now where we trade. There are still four and a half thousand stocks traded down here. We have 400 plus brokers and employees on the floor. It's not really important to look where we came from. It's important to look where we're going, okay? But still to this day, this floor is the most iconic and powerful room Everything that happens on this floor from nine to four in, in a will affect the financial markets going around the world, right? What happens here on the floor is still incredibly significant, perhaps more powerful and significant because we are one of the last human-based, broker-based, open-outcry markets. All that being said, in answer to your question, on a daily basis for the last hundred years, Every president, every prime minister, every head of state, every celebrity, every CEO, and every IPO has been on the floor of the stock exchange. So my memory, I'm not that old, but we've, I've seen President Bush, Mrs. Bush, I've seen President Reagan. No president since Reagan, I believe, has been on the floor, although Hillary Clinton was on the floor a couple of times. Uh, okay, but all that being said, we've seen Prime Ministers of Ireland recently on the floor. We've seen the President of any number of countries have been on the floor. We've seen CEOs, we've seen from DJ Khaled and Jay-Z, we've seen Shaquille O'Neal, we've seen great sports icons on the floor, we've seen great CEOs on the floor, we've seen people who have really changed the world of finance, of fashion, uh, sports, so, you know, this is a go-to place. This is a powerful place and an important place to be. We were up here on the balcony. We were down on the floor earlier, and there were hundreds milling around. But it's, as you alluded to earlier, there are less humans on the floor than there were 20 years ago. Can you talk about that and explain what's good and bad? Okay, so I wouldn't say it's because of electronic trading. I would say it's because of the advent of technology coming into a market that's a human-based market. Let me clarify what that means. So look, look at any industry. I was thinking about talking to you today as I came in. Right? Back in the old days, you used to have a, a teller at the, um, at the bank. You used to have a woman at the subway, a token booth, right? You used to have humans involved in every part of our lives, right? Then you have computers come in. Then you have technology coming in. So I think, and look in your business also. So you used to have hundreds of magazines that used to be out there. Now things are done digitally. So in some level, every business from finance to fashion to whatever thing that we interact with on a daily basis, less humans are needed to get a job done because you have a machine and a computer and whatnot that can do the job of a hundred people, of five people, of a thousand people in a moment's notice, right? So, it's a matter of what, what, what's our motivation here to talk about the floor and the humans that are left? What's the motivation? What's our, what monster do we want to feed? That this is a mark, is the cup half empty or is the cup half full? So we still have hundreds of people on the floor. Yes, they're not as many as there used to be. 
So let's break that down a little bit. So at one point we had 1,600 brokers. We had multiple tiers of employees that needed were needed to support the way the stock market moved on a human basis. Then you have technology coming in that can actually execute stock, not electronic trading, not a high frequency trading. We're talking about a market on the floor here where we have now a handheld computer. I'm sitting here with you, John. Yeah. I still have yeah. the paper and the pad I used to use. It used to be able to, each broker used to be able to do a certain amount of work, cover a certain amount of stocks, and there used to be market makers and brokers and clerks that were needed as humans to cover that stuff. As technology came in, there were mergers and acquisitions, companies got taken over. So while there were many specialist firms, now there are just a few. While there were thousands of brokers and clerks, now there are a few hundred. I mean, I would say more than a few hundred. But it's all the more important in a market that's based in technology now for us as humans to be here. We are the stop cause against problems that are that could potentially happen. I asked you when we walked in, would you get into a driverless car? Would you get on a plane that's being flown by a machine? Same story. Would you give your money to a market that's being run by computers that will react to a tweet, right? A human being, we are here as the pilots for the plane that take it off automatic pilot and fly it during turbulence. We are now in a time where turbulence is an ongoing thing, okay? Volatile wild markets are not happening once a year or twice a year. They're happening once or twice an hour. Mm. So all the more reason. So we can tell a story about a market that's dying and dwindling and fewer brokers and no need for brokers, or we can tell a story about the people who have to reinvent themselves in a world that's being taken over by artificial intelligence technology and say how it's so much more important to have humans as the end all and the be all and the point of execution in somewhere that's controlling your money, right? And someone who's making the human being making decisions about your money. So I think that's an important story to tell. So, so we have the technology and let us also mention regulation, of course, to say uh, the blend of the two. So how do traders actually add value in this environment? This high-speed trading uh, with very complicated rules. And, and secondly, how does the NYSE fit into this? What, what does the NYSE do that's distinct? Okay, so we are the last uh, human-based market, open outcry market. And NASDAQ doesn't have anybody, most of the markets around the world don't have humans at the point of execution. Um, I think it's important to note that I don't really know whether, reg you mentioned in your article in the Post, whether regulation has driven brokers out of the market. I don't really believe that. I think technology has driven brokers out of the market in a certain way, but there are still many, many people down here who are still executing and trading stock who have vibrant, growing businesses. What added value do I add as a broker here to my customers? So, algorithms, high-frequency trading, electronic trading are only as good as the information. And these this high-frequency trading, these transactions are happening at microseconds. Microseconds. So we don't really speed alive almost. And that is not happening here on the floor of the stock exchange. Okay. But so, what's it, what, what value do I add as a broker? And trust me, that my, the added value that I add is different than it was when I worked here in the 70s, 
and in the 80s and in the 90s. Every time there was an advent of new technology coming into the financial business and into our economy and into our world, right? I've had to reevaluate, reinvent myself and try and find out where I add value. I'm obviously still here. I'm incredibly relevant, as is the floor of the stock exchange and everybody who's still down here. Okay, what value do they add? Well, look, we've got a world that's being run by algorithms and by technology and by computers, right? That is, there's nothing human about that. There's no sensitivity to it, okay? It's being fed by information. It is only as, they're only as good as the information they're being fed, which is done by humans, okay? So what value do I add? So also we've got a world that can be hacked, okay? That can be shut down on a, on a notice. So we are at risk. While ad technology does add some value in speed, mm -hmm. okay, and it does add some value in, in quality of life at some in certain points of our lives. As far as finance goes, as far as the, the decision-making process, whether to buy and sell stock, when to buy and sell stock, how to buy and sell stock, okay, there's nothing like the human input in that. Okay, let me give you an example. We do talk, we've been talking about tweeting, about algorithmic trading, about there's actually, there, there's, there are robots that read social media and actually will react into the marketplace. So for example, we have a, the most sensitive story we've been dealing with over the last year is the China story mm. and the relationship with the president disseminating information, in my opinion, in irresponsible fashion. But the market is set up for that information, okay? So let's say a tweet goes out or something on social media. It can be about a takeover, it can be about a rumor, it can be about a situation between the US and China. It will engage an algorithm to buy stock up, okay, or down, or sell stock. Funny thing about markets is that if you're trying always to chase that information, and there are people that chase there are robots that chase it, and there are people that chase the chase. And now you have machine learning that, that analyzes those chasing the chase, and they chase the chase. There's no added value to me chasing an algorithm or a robot, right? So if it's a matter of just trading programs that are in and out and are really just trying to chase that, that, that information highway, well, so be it. That's not my world, and, okay? But if you're actually representing a hedge fund or an institution or a high wealth customer mm -hmm. who wants to be smart money, who wants you to buy stock with some sensitivity, who wants you to take all the expertise that I've learned over the years, right, in, in the act of actually be doing the best fiduciary responsibility mm -hmm. to take care of my customer and to not just buy because everybody's buying relative to a tweet or an algorithm, but to be sensitive and to use my expertise to know, once that all gets bought up, once when someone announces news or an acquisition or taking a stake in the company, that's already old news to us. Mm -hmm. And that I'm not necessarily going to react to that news from my customer. I'm there to, as a human being to fly that plane with all of the instruments I have at my disposal, but all the information and the experience I have. Experience and human intervention trumps, curious use of words, all of that technology. It's really clear and in our business more than anything else. 
Okay, the human intervention and my human experience in my field that I've been in for 30 plus years trumps all the information and reaction that a machine can do. You can have machine learning, reading, information, and tweets and all that, but then you're part of, you're, you're, you're just part of the crowd. I represent my customers, I, my company represents customers that I share my experience and my expertise at point of execution to do the best thing that human can do. So there's a certain irony here, Peter. You're ahead of the machines sometimes, and you can offer advice or what is known as color to your clients to guide them in their financial decision making, correct? 100%. So look, I am a broker, I'm a trader. I'm a point of execution. I'm here to convey information that together we may benefit them in deciding when to buy stuff, when to sell stuff. And I appreciate that you said, you described what my added value is. So at the end of the day, ideally as a human being, right? So look, at let's, let's once again use the, the automatic pilot on a plane scenario, right? I recently watched a movie with, about the landing of the plane in the Hudson and they were trying to analyze why that pilot did what he did. And he said, there's no way that your analysis through all your algorithms and potential scenarios that happen when the birds hit the engines could explain what I did to land that plane. No machine, no algorithm can explain why I did what I did. I looked at all that information and I made a judgment that we had no choice. You can present every scenario and run every take and every model and decide that I should have done, should have done that and all that and it would have caused the loss of life. In my situation, I take into account, I don't defy technology. I try and take advantage of it to my thing and don't run with the pack. I try and, and separate myself, having taken, availing myself of all the information and then make a decision and, and stop and pause and try and be ahead of the game. The first one to make a decision here is the smart one, not the last one. I don't want to be the last guy jumping on, piggybacking all that electronic stuff. I want to be the first guy to the party. Well, we know that there are a bunch of hedge funds out there and investors who rely on machine trading. But do they say to you, we want a human being on the floor. We don't completely trust machines, Peter. If, they, if there wasn't and they didn't, I wouldn't be here. And all these people down here on the floor wouldn't be here. What the NYSE has done against probably the powers that be that have always said, you know, that, that as technology takes over our industry, have said, you know what, we don't need brokers. We don't need a floor. We don't, the machines can do it. They've stood their ground. We can look at this from a conspiracy theory that they're trying to close us down and get rid of us. I don't buy into that, okay? They've invested a lot in rebranding and rebuilding this building, right? And keeping brokers on the floor and building the IPO model and keeping us relevant, okay? And this place, as I said, still has relevance and significance, not only as an iconic landmark, but as a added value to market makers and to traders. There are hundreds of hedge funds and institutions and brokerage firms which would feel remiss if they did not have human representation on the floor. They know that yes, in parts of their day, fast trading through a machine, hitting a button may be advantageous for saving money for them, 
but on the opening of the market, during the most volatile times in the market, on the close of the market, and some of them throughout the day, utilize humans to help them make decisions, to be the point of execution, to get information that's really reliable, right? They don't know whether the information that the machine's giving them is reliable. It may be just reactive information. It may be a reaction to a market. They want a human being who will respond. There's a big difference, right? If I react to information that already that has already been generated by a machine, and a tweet comes out and the market runs up 500 points, and I'm trying to always play catch up with that information, I will always be part of a pack chasing something. You've been described, the NYSE, as a price setter. That's kind of a, a unique value it brings compared with other exchanges. It sets the price. Is that, can you okay, describe so, that? Okay, so what you're trying to say is, so IPOs, initial public offerings, price discovery. Okay, price discovery is something that cannot be done by a machine. Okay, what is price discovery? That means where information disseminated about where the bodies lie, about where the buyers live, and the sellers live in a situation, and then they meet at a price that they agree on. Back in the old days of open outcry, I would buy, uh, where, where we had crowd trading, and I would go into a stock and I would bid $100 for 10,000 shares, and someone would offer 10,000 shares at $100 and a quarter, and eventually we would settle in on a price. That was price discovery in the humanist way through open outcry. Well now, within the realm of technology, we do it in a different way. Price discovery is what happens here on the floor on an initial public offering. What does that mean? In NASDAQ, when a stock goes public, they have all the buyers going to a computer, all the sellers go into computer, they wait five minutes, and then the stock opens. Here on the floor, what we do better is there's human interaction between the humans and their customers, there's interaction between us and the technology and the market makers. There's human interaction between us and the bankers. And once all of that is said and done, when everybody has the time to assimilate and digest the information on where they feel the stock is worth, whether this is a sector they want to be involved in, where they find value, where the buyers and sellers lie, and you build the building, and you can see the building with clarity, then we open the stock at a price that's correct where every, no one's at a disadvantage, all the buyers are happy, the sellers are happy, and then we go on. So that is one of the great added values of the floor of the NYSE, price discovery. On an average day for you, how many dollars are you trading? I don't know if that's really significant to say, but I mean, it can be 10 million to $250 million, right? It's a function of how busy a day it is, okay? It's a function of whether there's an IPO or secondaries or not. My days are very busy, okay? Uh, and I know some people paint a picture of the floor as a little more quiet than it used to be. That's possible for them. You know, we used to have 1,600 brokers, now we have four or 500. That's fine. But at the end of the day, this place is so relevant in so many ways that everybody wants a human involved in their decision making. So on a given day, I will be trading IPOs on the opening for, for my firm's customers. I will be trading secondaries on the opening. I will be helping to make a decision on 
whether to invest in this company or not due to the parameters given to me by the customer. There may be a lull midday where customers are on algorithms trying to be an average price or an average volume. That's true. But then once 1.30 or 2 o'clock comes around and we are once again made available information on what the closing bell is going to be, well, there's a business model about trading closing. So that's where a lot of the volume comes in. We used to be 10, we used to be 85% of the world trading volume. Now we're maybe 10 to 20% of the volume. Yet, what goes on here is still incredibly relevant. There are trading platforms all over the world. All you need is a buyer and a seller to trade and get flow. It's not significant flow, not relevant flow. Here, we are, we are capturing as much volume as we can. We are about price discovery. There are humans involved in this market, right? And our closing bell is the most significant time of the day, and we do most of our volume there. Well, in 1953, the New York Stock Exchange was doing maybe less than a million shares a day, and now, today, you're doing multiple millions of shares, correct? Well, we're doing a billion shares a day here now. So, I mean, look, let's look from the 50s until now. We've seen it, uh, there's been ebb, ebb and flow. So, I, I remember it was, I believe it was uh, January 21st, 1989. I had just become a broker, 1988. We traded 116, 116 million shares that day on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It was the busiest day in history up to date. I remember talking to the brokers that they remember when 10 million shares, they broke 10 million a day. So, so in 1988, we broke 116 million, and then we kept going more and more and higher and higher. Right now, so a billion shares is, you know, worldwide, they're trading multiple billion shares mm -hmm. of, of NYSE equities. Well, we have a billion shares that we trade on an average, I believe. Peter, tell us about yourself. You have a fascinating personal backstory. Uh, your parents came to this country as Holocaust survivors. Correct. Uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. So my parents uh, grew up, my mother grew up in Czechoslovakia. My father grew up in Poland. Obviously, in the, in the late 30s, Hitler came in and they were deported to concentration camps. Both of my parents spent four years in the camps. My mother's family was decimated by, by Mengele, the uh, Nazi doctor and she lost uh, five uh, brothers and sisters and spent four years in, in Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, which was the women's camp, the most, the most severe extermination camp. My father's mother was murdered by a Gestapo during one of the roundups in the late 30s, beginning of World War II. My father and my grandfather spent four years in multiple, multiple camps, Birkenau, Auschwitz, Treblinka, and by really God's grace and a bit of luck, my grandfather was chosen by the Nazis to run a factory in the third year of the war to make firing pins for uh, uh, bombers, uh, for one of the uh, German bombers. And he was a well-known uh, businessman before the war. He was the president of Suchard Chocolate. In Poland, he was well known. My family was well known in Eastern Europe at the time as businessman and his incredibly honorable family, which was a big deal back then in Eastern Europe. So that when the Germans came along and they needed a reliable person to build this factory and run this factory, my grandfather was chosen. 
he went on to pick, he, he went on to demand that he picked the 116 people who were to run the factory. My father was obviously one of them, a number of people who went on to become family friends. Uh, the CEO of IBM France was there. I have a younger adopted brother who was in that factory. So that was kind of a Schindler story where they were some of the few people who survived the last exterminations of Auschwitz. My parents met in a deportation camp, uh, in a displaced persons camp after liberation by the Russians and the British in the, in the early 40s. They were trying to figure out what to do with those few Jews that did survive the war and they were put in displaced persons camp. My parents met, fell in love, and ended up my father was one of the first Jews allowed in a German medical school after the war. He sat next to many, you know, Nazis in, in the Heidelberg Medical School in the mid and early 40s. Went on to be part of a group of survivors, about 58 of them, who went on to become well-known doctors in, all over the world. All that being said, my parents came to the States in 1949, fell in love, came to the States in 1949, and tried and proceeded to live the American dream. They, my father finished his medical school in Heidelberg, came to the States, uh, went to Bellevue and um, hospital where he did his residency. My mother was was a translator during the war. Uh, she spoke many languages, and that was one of the things that helped her survive the war. She was a translator for, uh, for the Nazis during the war, uh, as well as being a prisoner. But uh, there's fascinating stories about her brother who had left Europe beforehand and was, uh, went to Palestine in the, 19, the 20s and 30s and went on to become a uh, double agent for the English and the Israelis uh, in the creation of the state. She had a sister who had left Eastern Europe earlier than the breakout of the war and um, uh, came back to Europe and, and during the um, the Holocaust and changed her identity as to become a German woman, married a Gestapo, and proceeded to spend three years smuggling Jewish children out of Europe, out of Germany, while married to a German and declared a pure area. She was later caught and, and hurt quite badly and beaten, and was able to escape and went, ended up living the rest of her life in, in Israel. But all that being said, my parents came to the States, my father became a doctor. They had two children, me and my brother. He became very well known as an internist, as a master diagnostician. He was a member of the American College of Physicians. He taught medical school into his 90s. He had a beautiful private practice. My mother became his secretary, and they bore us, me and my brother. Um, they were powerful people, and they were wonderful people, and they found the American dream as immigrants here in 1949. And we're very proud to be American, very proud to be Jewish. My father always said that we are, we bear witness to the fact that Hitler did not kill all the Jews, that we were able to find a home here in the United States and follow our American dream. So you're a native New Yorker, you were born on the Upper West Side of New York City. How did the events in Europe, there were, that was a dark period in European history, world history, shape your family life here in America? What were the stories you told around the dinner table? So it's important, it's important to know, so look, I am a child of a survivor. There are very few survivors left. My father passed away this year at the age of 97. 
on November 11th. So one of the oldest surviving members of Auschwitz. So it's rare that one has both parents who are survivors. It's rare to have, let's say it this way, my parent came to the United States and embraced the American culture, became successful. You asked me what were the conversations around the dinner table. So I lived a very child of survivor life. So my parents have gone through their family's decimation four years in prison, bearing witness to the most one of the most horrible parts of history, stories that I could tell you that would, would make your skin crawl, right? I got to hear it firsthand. So I always say that there was never an evening where the dinner table conversation did not circle back to my parents' experience, right? So that's important to know. My father saw his mother murdered in front of him, shot by a Gestapo. Her last words were, you may get me, but you will not get my father, my son, and my husband. And we bear witness to that fact. My grandfather and father lived long, wonderful lives. My mother's story was a different story. Her parents were uh, selected by Joseph Mengele at the doors of uh, Auschwitz to be sent to the gas chamber. She spent four years living in the work camps. The stories she told would also curdle her blood, lying there waiting for the person next to them to die so that she could take their, their blouse or their shoes so she could live another day. You know, watching her sister die in her arms on the day of liberation of typhus, watching her other sister be taken to extermination, holding her two-year-old child, who I'm named after, Peter. So, you know, these were, while perhaps they were stories that were probably a little more than I could handle as a youngster, they needed to tell their truth. They needed to tell their story. And I'm, I'm living proof that it's important Look, we live in a really strange age right now, so hatred is a part of our lives. So it's important for us to know this did happen. It happened to people who were my parents. My parents had numbers branded on their arms. So if any, everyone, anyone has any question whether this Holocaust really did happen, let me tell you the truth, it did. But it's important to note that people can come out of this, still live a positive, powerful life, tell their story, realize that human kindness is the most powerful thing, and that hatred will not prevail. And do you ever reflect on it, Peter, how the world back then, and potentially going forward, could stoop so low, and we could witness crimes of such brutality against humanity? You know, you asked me this question in the time that we, we are in at the moment, where unfortunately, and I'm not going to get political, but I'm going to get social, where hatred seems to be the culture that we're in now, that it's acceptable to say to people, go back where you came from. It's acceptable to say immigrants shouldn't come to this country. It's acceptable to live in a culture of hatred and violence. We're seeing, for whatever reason it's happening, we've got more mass killings than we've seen in a long time. We've got Charlottesville. We've got places where hatred is, is you know, uh, it, 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 it is running rampant and without getting political for me I'm sort of there's a part of me that is thankful my parents are not here to, to witness it because as described to me as a child at the time that Hitler took over Europe if you read the stories I'm not a big reader but I know the story of the final solution people always ask the question 
as a powerful financial and social force in Eastern Europe before the war, how did the Jews end up in camps? And it was a slow dehumanization, a ghettoism, right, that they were able at the end to just walk off to the camps and, and be concentrated in these death camps. How did that happen? And it all started with the isolation, the hatred, the demarcation of them as Jews, you know? And unfortunately, I think perhaps we are seeing some of these uh, uh, social phenomenon happening where hatred is acceptable and the way people treat each other is, is questionable at this time. So my fear is that perhaps it can. Look, we've seen other Holocausts, right? Not the one that, that I obviously have a personal relationship with, but we saw it in Eastern Europe, in Romania, and in Kosovo, and, and Yugoslavia, and stuff like that. We've seen it happen in the Ukraine and in Soviet Union. We've seen it happen in South America. We've seen it happen in the United States, right? So, Are you optimistic for the future financially, politically, socially? Where do you see things going? And then we go back and talk about your trading. Uh, I am an optimist by nature. And the reason I ask that is that sure. people will tell us, you know, we have 21 trillion in federal debt, or, you know, 1 trillion this year, uh, the government's borrowing, we have a global debt uh, that can't be described in any real terms. It's unimaginable, the scale of it. We have personal debt at record levels, student debt, and we have, we see weaknesses in the world economy. We do. Look, I think economy, I'm not an economist, and I'll just talk about my experience. Global growth or global recession and slowdown, markets on their lows or markets on their highs, consumer spending at lows and consumer spending at highs, geopolitical turmoil, geoeconomic turmoil, whether it's in Greece or in Italy, countries falling, walls falling and walls being put up. All that being said, at the end of the day, I need to... I need to relate to this from my personal experience, right? Uh, I need to relate to it as a connector and as somebody who likes to create and motivate other people. Sure, if you look at the big picture, perhaps it may look dismal. All I can do is do the best I can on a daily basis to take care of my world and to the world of people around me. And that's to say to pay it forward and to give back. I'm a firm believer in that, in sharing one's experience, strength, and hope trying to be charitable in every possible way. I am very optimistic for the future. I think we're in, you know, look, two weeks ago, market was at, if we had done this interview, you would have said to me, Peter, the market's at a record high. The, you know, the, the interest rates are good. Unemployment's at a wonderful place. We've got things that are wonderful around the world and everything's great. So two weeks later, you're painting a picture that we've got slowing global growth, low business investment, markets trading off its highs, and consumer spending lower than so it's funny how things that used to take generations to happen are happening on a weekly basis. So as I said to you when you walked in, let's just say, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, right? All, we were recognized two weeks ago and we were talking about how wonderful in the markets at a 10-year boom and it's all fine and good. And then a week later we were at an inversion of the yield curve and we we're talking about recession and doomsday. So I think all of that, you know, is just exaggeration and whatnot. Yes, there's a trillions of dollars in debt. Yes, there's a lot of student loan. Yes, there's a lot of geoeconomic and political stuff going on. But at the end of the day, I need to maintain optimism, right? I try to do the best for my customer, if you want to bring it back to me and for my family. I try and help people to the best of my ability. I try, I've, I've been very fortunate 
right? In every possible way, my family was an amazing force and support for me. Trust me, I've not always had a, a, a flawless, wonderful life. I've run into obstacles along the way in my journey. My bottom line is though that you get up, you dust yourself off. You know, it's not a matter of how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you pick yourself back up and keep going. Same here with this. So, you know, I can, I tend to pay the, for me, the cup is always half full. Let's get back for one second about this place I work in. We can look at this place as not as it once was, and it's not the force it once was, and tell the story of a requiem or a eulogy, or we can say that this is a time where humans are all the more important, that the stock exchange as a landmark and as a relevant force still stands and is here and in fact is bigger than ever in so many different ways, more relevant, more powerful, and more needed. More needed in a time where we're being tossed and turned around by tweets and social media, by information that is not particularly accurate. This is where we need to be. Humans need to be a much bigger part of our lives and our finances and all of that. Where do you see the Dow headed in the next six months, next year? I'm if sure you're asked that I, all the time. If I knew that, you and I could make a decision and go on vacation. Yes. So, okay, so what I, I say, I do a lot of TV and media stuff because I, I think what I have to say is a little different. I'm not an economist, I am a trader. I call myself a forensic trader. I try and look at the market, look, look I've never owned a stock, if you read about me, you've heard this before, I've never owned a share of stock in my life. Everyone goes, how's that possible? I don't believe you, that's funny. Trust me, it's Where true. do you invest your money? I've invested my money in my children. My children both graduated college without a penny of debt, okay? That's where I put my money. There were a number of years, I worked down here three, four years in 07, 08, where I didn't make a penny. But I came to work every day because I was hoping that I, the market and, and my business would turn around, and it did. All right, so I've invested, I think the most significant thing is in my family. And if I, the family follow you in the business? Well, I have a son who works on the floor. I have a son. Historically, this is a place where families used to come. Your grandfather worked here, your father So your son here. is on the floor? My father, my son. So if we look over the balcony here, we can see who we, which uh, son. I will point him, I'll point him out to you before you leave. Okay. His name is Benny Tuckman. He's number 100. Okay. I'm number 588. So, I always say if you're a trader, and listen, look, we're in, a, we're in a new state here as far as the markets go. As I just described to you two weeks ago, we were at record highs, and all the press was talking about was how wonderful it's are. It's a 10-year boom. We're at record highs. Unemployment's at a low. Consumer spending's at a high. Earnings season was good, and everything is fine and good. And then one tweet later, one week later, or one trade war later, or one crisis that may be real or not created week later, we see a market that's in recession, and we see a market that's in trouble, and we see lower interest rates, and the market's selling off a thousand points. So, all that being said, I always say, if you're a trader, I think you need to be nimble, mm -hmm. and take your profits while you can. There will always be another opportunity to buy and sell that stock. As an investor, I think for the long term, this economy is doing good. Yes, there are some headwinds, for sure. All of the economy is not good. I, I, I probably am more of a one percenter than not, because I, I, I'm successful here and I make a living and I have lived a very privileged life. But at the end of the day, I don't know what it's like to, to be living on minimum wage, so I can't address that. So I hope that the economy 
will perhaps start to favor those who are less fortunate more. I'm not sure that how that's going to happen. I, you know, look, we always talk about the market's doing great, the economy may not be, right? But everyone's not invested in the market. Mm -hmm. What I think is important to say right now is, you know, one of the new things that I'm doing is to try to educate young people in financial literacy. I'm trying to, you know, my, the message that I try and talk about is to invest in stocks, not in stuff, right? When young people come down here to talk to me about the market and what should they invest in, I always say to them, you know better than I what to invest in. What sneakers are you wearing? What phone do you use? What computer do you have? And what clothing do you have? That's things that interest people. What, what games do you play? What sports do you go see, right? And all those end up being tied to a public company. So as opposed to going out and buying the next pair of Nike or the next iPhone, go out and buy yourself a little bit of stock. You can now actually slightly engage these applications where you can buy $10 worth of a stock, right? So invest in yourselves, invest in stocks, and not so much in stuff. And I think that's a really good message. So it sounds like you see the Dow headed up higher, Peter. You're going to really try and get <laughs> to predict the market. You know what? I think long term, the market is strong. Okay? I kind of think that it's hard to watch on a daily basis. So let's, okay, you know what? Markets trade on probability and on historic data. Okay? So let's look. On the night president was a, uh, inaugural, uh, on the night the president was elected, the market went down a thousand. By the time we woke up that next day, we went up a thousand. On Brexit, on the vote, the market went down a thousand points. By the end of trading, we went up a thousand points. Let's bring it right back to last week when they started spinning the in inverse yield curve story and the recession story. The market closed down 800 yeah. points, and in the next subsequent four days, the market traded back up to a thousand points. Yes, the market did sell off on Friday on a tweet about China, and now we are back up to 150 points. So every large, fast and furious sell side that we've seen over the last number of years, okay, has been rebuffed by a much stronger buy side, which in my opinion means there are still buyers in the market. The buy side being investors. Correct. I, okay, so that there are still people in the wings underinvested with money to spend looking to get involved in the market. I think there are still bids and buyers in the market where interest rates are reasonable, where unemployment is at a, at a very good level, where earnings and guidance seem to be okay. I will say this, that the only headwind I see in the market short term is the fact that when economically sensitive data is disseminated in an irresponsible fashion, that causes anxiety and gets people who are investors in the market to stand in the sidelines temporarily. Now, I don't know how long this is going to last. It does contribute to the volatility we've seen. When a tweet comes out that is economically sensitive and it turns to be out to be a negative posturing one, all the buyers disappear and the sellers take control of the market, and that's what we saw on Friday. But when people are able to pause and consolidate their thoughts and digest that information and realize, okay, well, this is not actually a selling opportunity, it's perhaps a buying opportunity because it's not, it's not a long-term erosion of anything more than confidence. And once the confidence comes back into the market, the market tends to rebound. Peter, we're gonna finish up on a lighthearted note. I noticed your wrists 
are covered in bracelets that jingle as you walk the NYSE floor. So I want you to tell us about that. And also I saw down in your booth some personal items uh, which looked pretty enchanting. Okay, so one of the best fun things about me, I think historically people who have worked on the trading floor are incredibly unique, special, probably some of the best people woven from the finest cloth I've ever seen. Right? I've been in a lot of different industries in my life. I've been in the music business, I've been in the agricultural business, I've been in the food business, and then I've been in this finance business. But here, particularly on the floor of the stock exchange, historically, some of the finest, some of the most philanthropic, family-oriented people in the world. Back in the day when there were a lot more people here, and still to this day, I lost my mother, my brother, and my father, and my wife got cancer. I came to work the next day on all of those situations because this is my family and this is where I knew I would get spiritual, emotional support. When anyone has ever been in financial straits or gone through any kind of turmoil in their lives, they come down to this floor and they get the support they need. I recently brought a young six-year-old boy who's fighting cancer on the floor, and they, they, they lauded him, they, they gave him a reception that is unmatched. So the people that are down here are some of the finest people in the world, but yet again, they are very unique. Each personality that makes up a broker or a market maker or a clerk that has been able to find their life and career here on the floor has been very quirky, special, wonderful, fun, incredibly philanthropic people. All that being said, I am no exception. I'm a wild and crazy guy. I look like Einstein before I shaved my head last week in solidarity of my wife losing her hair during chemo. But I was known as the Einstein of Wall Street. But, um, Your wife's doing well now? She is. She's going to be okay. We're done with chemo and we're going to move on to, to, to survive another day. But all that being said, you, you talked about, so I am my own being, a lot of people down here. Some people are into food, some people are into finance, some people are into sports, some people are into charity and giving back, some people, everybody's got their shtick. It's always been that way. But at the end of the day, when anyone's been in need, they show up for you. I'm the guy, my father was a well-known doctor, they came to me for, finance, for medical advice. I was the guy in the food business, we're the ones who talk about fun food and stuff like that. I'm also the guy who has been cited for excessive jewelry. Where the jewelry comes from, I don't really know. I started wearing bracelets years ago, but I am my own self. I am a fun-loving guy. I'll say one last thing. So one of the new ways that I've reinvented myself on the floor is I've built this brand called the Einstein of Wall Street. I've, I've gotten on social media and I've sort of connected young artists. Art, art is something that's something very special for me. So over the last couple of years, I've created this this family in this environment that's super friendly, the young street artists, people who are, some are successful, some are new up and coming. I've curated a hall upstairs on the sixth floor, which has now been seen by all the CEOs and heads of state all over the world of young street artists. And I'm also somebody who's very involved in, in charity and stuff like that. So I'm the wild-looking Einstein-y guy with a lot of excessive jewelry, who's fun-loving, boisterous, loud, obnoxious, and, and the media's loving that, and I'm loving to build my brand. I'm loving to tell my story. A quick shout out for the company you work for? Quattro Securities. Peter, it was a wonderful... The Einstein of Wall Street. <laughs> wonderful talking to you and I'll come back here again Anytime. and we'll see where the Dow is at. You're welcome. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. 
To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.